Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with conservationists, ecologists, wildlife filmmakers, or really anyone who dedicates their lives to helping nature. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects, and worldwide environmental issues. So if you've been listening from the start, you'll know all about the coffee connection, and today I'm featuring Owen's Coffee, an organic and fair trade coffee company that puts sustainability at the top of their priority list, from the packaging to their roastery itself. I was really excited to learn more about them and buy some of their coffee from my new local low-waste shop. So listen to the end to find out who they are and why you should be supporting them. If you don't know already, you can find out all about the coffee connection to this podcast on my Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists. This week I sat down with Megan McCubbin. Megan is a zoologist, wildlife presenter, photographer and conservationist. We talked about her work with Raptor Persecution, her new book, being the newest presenter on BBC's Springwatch, and her views on British wildlife and the projects that impact biodiversity recovery, both for better and for worse. Hi Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. We'll start it off by getting to know you a bit. Um, could I, could you tell us about you and kind of where your interest in the natural world started? Of course. Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me. Um, so my name is Megan McCubbin and I've been studying zoology for, well, I think since I was probably about two years old, not technically studying it, but, you know, getting that practical experience. I've just absolutely always been fascinated with wildlife. Um, and I think for me, it started off with a fascination with the species. But of course, you can't love the species without then growing and wanting to understand about their uh, their evolution, their environment, their ecology, and how better able to protect it. So I started, um, when I started studying officially, I then spent most of my time gaining practical experience by volunteering as much as I could. Um, I went and studied bears in China, I lived there for a few years, helping to rehabilitate individuals stuck in the illegal uh, bear bio farming industry. And then I went and worked with sharks for quite a long time, working on behavioural personality studies and ecology of tiger sharks. So it's been quite varied for me. For me, it's, I've always had a love of kind of predators and predatory behaviour um, and the illegal wildlife trade as well. It's a really big passion. So initially, I started off looking quite internationally at things. And I think throughout lockdown and in the last, I don't know, two years or so, I've, uh, I've gained such a... A, a strong well I've always had a strong interest in British wildlife but I've really just grown to love it even more I'm sat here watching a, a wasp a common wasp girdling on the the garden table at the moment and it's just the most fascinating of things so it's a it's a it's a love and a curiosity for everything yeah that's great I think a lot of um a lot of young naturalists nowadays kind of I don't know between sort of late teens early 20s moving into degrees and that kind of thing all got their start in just a kind of exploring their gardens and uh, fascinated, uh, a fascination with nature as, as children. Um, and it's really interesting to hear you talk about the illegal wildlife trade, because uh, that's definitely something that I had a big connection to when I was younger in terms of um, sort of starting my interest in international wildlife. Um, you recently finished writing a book, you've mentioned in a message a couple of weeks ago, I think. Are you able to tell us anything about that? Yeah, of course. So actually, the uh, the final deadline is today. <laughs> so, um, so 
yeah, we're kind of finishing off that now. So the book is called Back to Nature. I'm writing it with Chris Packham, who's my stepdad. Um, and it's basically a, a handbook or a guide about how we can go about putting nature back together again. So it's um, it's quite a collective group of ideas um, and suggestions and hopefully conversation starters that will get people thinking. So we start talking about things at a quite local level, about what people can do in their own green spaces, whether that be their gardens, their balconies. Um, and then we talk through into the wider issues like rewilding, reintroductions, um, activism and politics are definitely weaved in there as well. And it's kind of just how people can get involved and become active. And, um, you know, activism might mean one thing to somebody else. Maybe you're part of Extinction Rebellion and you're happy to go and get locked on and risk your liberty. Um, or perhaps activism for you is putting a hedgehog highway in your garden. So we talk about the differences between that and it's interspersed with lots of different science pieces as well, because whilst it's important that we talk about the heavy big issues as well, I think, you know, we wanted to remind people about why we love nature, why we do this in the first place. So, um, there's lots of new interesting science that's quite unexpected um and then there's yeah lots of just different practical solutions of how we can go about making the environment a better place mm, that's great to hear it sounds like something uh both me and a lot of my peers will be interested in reading because that's definitely something that's uh i don't know it's been in the in the mainstream a lot more recently i think especially with bigger issues um bigger conservation issues in the uk um it's definitely we kind of we're starting to focus more on the stuff on our doorstep, uh, especially during lockdown. I think that it's um, it's come a long way from a lot of conservation organisations uh, still focusing on the kind of fluffy creatures and the and the ones that need protecting internationally, but they are also bringing it home and um, bringing a, a better connection to UK wildlife. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think you know lockdown was a, a very obviously incredibly difficult time um, and something that was really quite a traumatic thing for, for many of us. Um, but I think you know one of the well I'm not going to say silver lining, but obviously it's, it's difficult to say that there is silver lining to this. Mm. But it's um, I think everyone took a step back. There was more time, and uh, you know you weren't rushing out the door, you weren't sorting your kids out, you weren't you know moving around as fast as you do and filling up your your brain with I don't know the daily admins of you know normal life whatever normal what is and 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 we had time to reflect and we had time to pause and often that meant for people that they could sit out in their garden they could watch the wasp girdling a piece of wood or they would notice the I don't know the bluebells or the wooden enemies or whatever they have in their own space and they would watch and I think for many of us you know I, I found this as well I work quite a lot and I travel around all the time so to have the opportunity to be at home in one place and watch the season as it changes and really connect with what is happening literally on the doorstep was a really incredible opportunity I feel like I've learned more about the wildlife in my back garden throughout the course of lockdown than I have done in the 10 years that I've been here because I've just been able to watch and observe and see it and connect with it um so I think that is quite an empowering thing because once we're connected with it, then we are more motivated to change it. And I think that's something that I've seen. Uh, a lot of people have recognised that. So I really hope, you know, I think like many people that, um, you know, lockdown has, you know, as horrendous as it was, has kind of awoken people to the importance of looking after nature in their back garden and hopefully we'll see some significant changes. I mean, so many people put in ponds into their gardens, which was amazing to see by just thinking um, the washing up bowls and, uh, and building bug hotels and things like that. So hopefully we don't lose that momentum and we continue to make things better. Mm, 
yeah, I think that's definitely something we need to focus on is is uh, keeping that momentum going. Um, I know a lot of people now are kind of being pushed back into the office and they will have less time. But hopefully the the mindset is uh, is a bit changed in it to a, to a more positive direction. Um, since we're talking about lockdown, uh, you were involved in two pretty big projects during lockdown. Uh, one being the brilliant self isolation bird club, and also you joined the spring watch team for the first time. Could you tell us a bit about those experiences? Yeah, um, yeah, it was a, it was a kind of a crazy lockdown for me in terms of uh, mm. kind of being busy with uh, with, with filming. We had um, we, what we did, we woke up one morning and we noticed, you know, we I live in the New Forest and I'm, when lockdown started, I, I moved back in with my stepdad Chris um, because we were able to work more effectively together mm. uh, during that time, being you know isolating together. So I, he woke up one morning, or I think I, I came downstairs. He was out in the garden just doing a Facebook live on his phone. Um, and it was all very kind of rough and ready. He was just holding it and zooming in and out of wooden enemies. I think it was the first one. Um, and he just said that he, you know, he saw the beauty in it and it brought him a lot of kind of calmness. Um, and he wanted to share that with people. So that's how it started. So he started doing them twice a day for about a week. And then he had to go to work somewhere, I think. So I took over for the day. And then it just kind of grew from there. We got our fantastic producer, Fabian Harrison, on board, who made it very polished and you know almost kind of broadcast quality did an amazing job and we got contributors from all around the world showing you know what wildlife was doing in their corner in their area Um, and it just grew into just an amazing community of people that were just looking for something positive and I think it's built a lot of relationships and it and it really well for me anyway it really helped kind of ground me and remind me of you know why I do what I do so um South Park City Bird Club is yeah, it was a lot of fun, and we're still doing them. We're doing them weekly, Friday mornings at 9am on social media platforms. Um, and, yeah, so that's kind of how things started. And then Spring Watch came about, and I knew a couple of months before that competitions had started, and I might be joining the team for this year. Um, and, yeah, it was the most amazing experience. We got to do it from home, which was quite unusual. Normally with Spring Watch, it's a very big production, and everyone's either up in Scotland um, or wherever the location might be. Um so doing it from home with a very limited crew, there was a, we had two people in the satellite truck making sure that the transmission was going well. We had our main uh, uh, camera operator and then an assistant too. So there was only four crew, which is absolutely kind of tiny in comparison to the plus yeah. 100 that you'd normally have. So and doing it from home was, I don't know, for me, I thought it was, not, it was nice to be able to do my first one at home and bring them the comforts of home because I'd never done live TV like that. I've done presenting uh, for quite a few years but I'd never done anything like Springwatch so it was a, a, an amazing learning curve and it was brilliant to be part of the family. I definitely think that the, both of those things brought a lot of uh, calm into people's kind of a uh, people's lives kind of a regularity I guess um, especially for a lot of people who would have followed you and Chris on social media you have the the bird club which was as you said a regular thing so I think it um, anything like that, anything to connect with nature, um, especially for the people I think who were uh, um, who don't have gardens or don't have easy access, weren't able to get to parks um, or or any wild spaces really. I know there was a lot of people that I've spoken to who were kind of in top floor apartments who were were watching the bird club and uh, really following along with with your activities, which um, helped them a lot during that time. Oh, thank you. No, we, see, it was, it's made, the response that we had was just, um, 
incredible, something that I don't think either of us ever expected. It was just, um, you know, we found escapism in the wildlife in our gardens and we just wanted to share that. And I think you know, that's what Springwatch was. It was, you know, it took you away from, you know, the horrors of COVID-19 and the news, which was, you know, bad story after bad story after bad story in it. And I think, it, you know, for many people, you know, myself included, it does get you down massively. Um, and you're worried, you're isolated, you can't see your family. But being able to connect with nature, you know, whilst you're not connecting with the people you care about, you can connect in another way. Um, and I think it, it just came down to escapism, um, you know, being in amongst it. That's, that's how I got through anyway. Uh, not that it's necessarily over just yet, but um, I think I think a lot of people just kind of relied on it a lot more to, you know, the benefits of mental health, connecting with nature um, and just seeing how things change throughout the season. It provided a lot of solace. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's um that's definitely something that I found. Uh, <laughs> that's all right. Um, yeah, no, that's definitely something that I found was was really helpful. Just the the escapism. I mean, we're really lucky. We had a big garden. Um, we have a car, so we're able to go into the countryside, and the kids can run around the fields and you know enjoy nature properly. But um, yeah, for a lot of communities, that just wasn't possible. Um, so I think it's really important to to bring the nature to them. Um, obviously, that that was quite a positive question, but I do want to talk about a few of the more negative sides to your your job because um, unfortunately, the UK is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world, and you can't really talk about British conservation without talking about some of the negatives to that. Um, it's it's kind of common knowledge that your family, uh, Chris especially, has been. Uh, targeted for his I want to say anti-hunting but it's not really anti-hunting it's kind of more pro-wildlife or pro-biodiversity views uh, by the British hunting community if you feel comfortable to could you tell me about your experiences with the hunting community um, good or bad yeah so I, th- I think with this kind of thing it's really important to say you know a, a lot of the time Chris gets branded and people within that this industry gets branded as you know entirely anti-hunting or anti-shooting what it is is it's an anti-unsustainable shooting I think is the main thing to say it's not all shooting it's unsustainable unethical shooting and there's a very big difference with that um, and I think you know there's been a lot of uh, of trouble in terms of there's been this massive divide in conservation where you know a lot of people that manage the countryside whether they be gamekeepers landowners um, and people who um i don't know uh, the scientists or you know kind of conservationists like chris's have kind of um i don't know they've come into a bit of conflict um because because of those kind of views and i think things get spun out of proportion and i think it's really important to um kind of have conversations because it's collective thinking that is going to make us stronger in terms of how we adapt and um do better conservation for wildlife so yeah i mean you know that's a divide that definitely needs to be addressed because i don't think it's productive for anyone Um, um but we also do need to really look at the science and that's what it has to be all you know all the opinions around you know unethical shooting everything it's all formed around um peer reviewed unbiased science and I think you know we need to really look at that and ultimately consider changing our practices as human beings we're so reluctant to change our minds and this is something I wrote about in the book we um, often confuse our political beliefs which include environmental beliefs 
um, with our own personal identities. And our brains aren't physiologically very good at differentiating the two. And we often view a change of opinion, whether that be political or environmental, as you know, an attack on our ourselves as individuals. And that is uh, where everyone, I think, gets their back up. And understandably, that's physiologically what happens. <laughs> um, so you know that's something that we, I think people need, we need to be aware of but we also need to have these difficult conversations and be open to them um, and, and be willing to change our mindsets you know I would go into everything as I, as much as I can with an open mind whether that be um, you know when there's some things that I, I, I feel very strongly about you know fox hunting and grouse shooting it's part of that um, but when it comes to kind of different types of management and things like that then I think you know there's got to, there's got to be conversations there um yeah, so a broad, a broad overview of a very difficult, um, a very difficult topic. <laughs> um, yeah, and I th- that's a really great answer actually because I know it is a really hard, uh, it's a really hard topic to boil down into a short answer. Um, it's a really complicated topic and it is quite controversial, as you say. But I think that people, um, I mean, I'm I've been vegetarian for four and a half years. Um, and I still get people talking to me in, in very civilised ways about uh, deer in the UK. And I think that's definitely a conversation that should be had more. Is, um, you know, unfortunately, we've we've got to a point in, in the UK with our bad practices, you know, years ago where we killed all the predators. Um, so we have to kind of be the predator and we have to be the top of the food chain um, and certain types of deer in in certain numbers have to be killed and I think that is a very difficult thing for people a lot of people to accept um and yeah that that conversation is is something that uh we could sit here and spend hours talking about um but you you summarized that really really well thank you no yeah I mean the deer thing is a you know a lot I mean I could never shoot an animal I just Mm, I don't yeah you know ever want to hurt anything um you know let alone you know when it's manifested as the it's a sport or anything else it just doesn't compute in my brain I don't understand why anyone would enjoy going out and shooting an animal taking its life and injuring it I just don't think for me I think you know I couldn't but I think when it comes to shooting if if it has an ecological purpose you know like deer culling I mean I live in the new forest and there are so so many deer. I, I you know I go out walking the dogs and I'm guaranteed to see at least over fifty probably in in quite a small area, mm. and that really hinders the kind of the growth of the forest. And um, so we have people come and you know in the, the area where we are, they come and the cull the deer. And I think shooting for an ecological purpose, as you say, because there are no predators, it's something called the ecology of fear whereby animals will naturally move on and move around if they are fearful of being predated on themselves. However, the deer that we have in the UK don't have that fear because they've lived for generations without the concern of being hunted by a wolf or a bear or whatever it may be. So therefore, they stay in one area and can really damage the um, damage the woodland, which is what's happening. Um, so here, there's kind of ecological shooting and... Um, but it's um you know it, it it is it is difficult and I think it varies from place to place, um and and location. So, but it, those are kind of important conversations. I think you know going out to shoot diff to protect the forest. Unfortunately, if we have, I much rather have bears and wolves around to be totally honest. But that's a whole other controversial conversation. Yeah. Rather than go out and us have to manage it because that, that's artificial at the end of the day. And uh, but we've made an artificial landscape. You know we've got 
monoculture of moorland, which you know might support a couple of species, but it doesn't support a host of biodiversity. And um, then you know, of course, we're going to have to manage it because it's artificial. But if we take a step back, things you know will eventually come back to that natural equilibrium. Yeah, um, I think yeah, it, it's hard for a lot of people to talk about, but um, kind of you you mentioned moorland, and I know we do have a. Uh, it's a, another controversial topic, um, so I'm not expecting you to spend hours on this. Um, and I know it's you've said before that it's more Chris's thing, but could you talk about wild justice a bit in relation to specifically grouse um, and kind of the game bird industry? Because obviously hunting in the UK is a, is a, a very big topic, but uh, the game bird industry and the possibly quite unethical practices that happen around that uh, are a slightly narrower topic, I guess. Yeah. Um, so Wild Justice is a group that was set up by Chris. It was set up by uh, Mark Avery and Ruth Tingay. Um, and the concept behind it was to uh, raise funds through crowdfunding um, to bring environmental injustices into the court and look at them legally and try and get systematic policy changes. Uh, a lot of what they have done so far has been to ask for a review. So a lot of kind of shooting, you know, they call it the glorious 12th, which is the start of the shooting season. And they go out and grouse shoot, it'll be red grouse, um, also pheasant shooting um, and, and partridges, things like that. Um, you know, pheasants are non-native to the uk yet we release i think it's about 60 million of them into the countryside and there has never been a review of how that impacts our native biodiversity it's mm. never been investigated it's never been looked at and um, so one of the the cases recently with was with world justice they asked for a review to just a scientific independent review to understand exactly what the impact of reducing 60 million non-native birds into the uk countryside is is going to have um and you know that definitely got twisted in terms of you know the world justice we were asking for for it to be i don't know um to like banned in the first place but all they were asking for was a review to understand exactly what happened um that review has since taken place but there are, are a few issues with it but I, I won't go into that now um so yeah i mean the whole point of, of world justice i think is to bring about awareness of these type of issues and just to asked to look at that type of change and to bring those into courts and to make that systematic change which is what we all desperately need right now i definitely agree with that because i think um a lot of uh the the issues that uh, either we've been talking about just now or just all the big conservation issues in the uk a lot of them are taken to social media they're taken to debates um there's people throwing various articles and reviews at different people and it's always quite um, just quite informal debate. And I think that having a, a proper review of these things and uh, a legal precedent and legal proceedings around ecological uh, potential ecological crime is is really important um, because it can get I mean, issues, especially things like hunting can get overblown. Um, they can get to, we've got things like Twitter, which will, you know, absolutely be incendiary in in the wrong way often yeah i think you know you know everyone we need everyone to sit around a table and and, and discuss these kind of things mm. um willing for that for quite some time um i've recently come under a bit of fire um because i i, I presented something called hen harry day this year with chris 
Um, and uh, I got the opportunity to go and see hen harriers in a nest. And hen harriers are the most persecuted bird of prey in the UK. We know that the majority of them are shot over driven grouse moors. Um, the reason being for that is because they will predate grouse. That's not their primary source of food but if you're going to i don't know it might not be your favorite sort of food but if there's a high enough abundance of it then of course you're going to make the most of that resource um so and because of that kind of competition with them taking the grouse and people wanting to shoot the grouse um they're often shot not just hen harriers but buzzards um you've got lots of different things eagles uh, even you know dogs were found having eaten poison bait that was set out for raptors and um, there was one recently unfortunately that that ate quite a bit i think um and passed away and we found a peregrine that had enough poison in it and to kill a small child so it it's it's no it's so wrong in so many different ways and this is illegal you know that's one thing to to point out is that when we talk about raptor persecution this isn't you know this shouldn't be a controversial subject because it is illegal you've got you know you can't go out and, and shoot these birds because they're so fundamentally important many of them are increasingly rare um and also it's it's a danger for the countryside as well with poison bait being left out and about for any small child to pick up or any dog to eat or whatever animal it may be it's so non-selective in who it harms it's just not it's it's not acceptable so you know I, I've, I've been posting quite a bit about that and um I, i've been invited to go to a grouse moor um and i've agreed to do it because i want to keep an open mind i want to go and try and understand you know more about that management and more about the impacts of it um but I'm not, I'm not going to go on a shooting day, that's for sure. But I think it's important to go and see and to understand all these different sides so that we can make the best informed decision about how to move forward. Because we certainly do need to move forward. We can't keep going the way we're doing things. We are like damaging our habitat more than ever. It's entirely derelict of wildlife. You know, we go to the Peak District or the Lake District and it's all green and it looks nice and but in fact it's so depleted of anything um, it's these kind of bleached landscapes that yes it's green but it's all this monoculture um, I was at the Peak District recently and where the weather should have been you know tens of buzzards flying around and kestrels there was just none there was nothing there it's all gone so we don't have time to be continuing with these practices we've got to be you know quite firm in terms of how we change because there isn't enough time left to continue doing this doing what we're doing mm, yeah yeah I, I actually um i was reading i'm not sure if this was a mistake or not but i was reading the comments on your post on instagram about you visiting the um hen harriers and it was there's some quite um interesting points of view that I think he dealt with very well in providing, you know, solid scientific research and articles for them to read. Um, and I think it's important, as you said, to just sit down and, and have a discussion about this um, instead of throwing it at, at random strangers on the internet. Um, it's change... about the science of the day. It always has to come down to the science. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, especially with, with things that are ecological. Um, and I think changing tech slightly to a more positive approach um there's been there has been you know there's been negatives but there's been quite a few wildlife successes in the uk and the one that springs to mind is the reintroduction of beavers in devon um that's looking to be like a great project obviously there's a lot of conservation groups uh organizations individual 
sorry, individuals, and they've all been working together um, to make projects like this successful. Um, in terms of looking at, I mean, the, the government, I don't want to get too political, but the government in the UK, um, like government bodies that deal with wildlife, um, like Natural England and DEFRA, what's your kind of opinion of, of their impact that they've had on UK biodiversity in sort of recently, fairly recently? Um, you know, I, I would always say that there's more that needs to be done and more that should have you know, it should have been done a long time ago and certainly should be doing today. You know, the beavers, I'm very excited about, you know, beaver reintroductions. I'm a huge advocate for it. I'm a, an ambassador for um, Beaver Trust UK. Um, so it's something that, you know, I feel is very, very important. Um, you know, we're, we're one of the last countries in Europe to reintroduce beavers. You know, everywhere else has been reintroducing them for a long time with so much success, so much reductions in flooding, so much more, um, you know, pros for their habitat restoration because they're such amazing interesting animals that are these incredible engineers that create all these freshwater habitats that support so many more species and we know that freshwater habitats around europe and and, indeed the world as well are in a lot of trouble they're um they're declining massively so you know to introduce beavers would be of a massive benefit and in my opinion it should have been done a long time ago there's so many arguments for having them that it doesn't even become an argument anymore it just becomes logical that we would have these animals in our landscape i think we're just so as i said earlier we're so reluctant to change and what that might bring about that we are incredibly hesitant and nervous but i think you know it it comes down to land ownership at the same time because there are less people in the uk that own well fewer people that own more land if that makes sense so to to get the land in order to do these conservation solutions or climate solutions whatever they may be can be really difficult because access to land is tricky and when land is up for sale it's incredibly expensive you can look at Langham Moor which is a uh, which was a grouse moor but now it's up for um, up for sale for six million pounds and um, what's happening with that is that there's a community the Langham community are trying to buy it as part of a community project and that will become a major um, restoration project and they will hopefully try to rewild it and reintroduce lots of different species which sounds incredibly exciting um so it's about kind of having access to land and being able to introduce these species successfully and i think you know beaver should have been done a long time ago they're a a fantastic keystone species that um should be commonplace within the uk yeah i think that um a lot of people feel the same um i've seen a big surge recently on social media about the whole land justice issue Um, because of sort of recent contentious um, votes or proposals to limit uh, our access to land through criminalising trespass um, as well, which obviously would have a a devastating effect on projects like this um, and probably just up the price a lot of of, uh, private land. Um, Leading on from that, because it's obviously relating quite strongly to government organisations giving certain permits, um, could you briefly talk about HS2? So I, I know I'm hoping to have an entire episode on HS2, but as kind of a conservationist, as a zoologist, an environmental campaigner, um, just give me a rundown of your opinion of of its impact on UK biodiversity, uh, or the or the one it's already having, I guess, on biodiversity. I am entirely devastated by HS2. I, as I think many people are. I'm. I just cannot believe 
in 2020, when we've declared a climate and environmental emergency, that a project like HS2 is still going ahead. You know, we know that it's going to destroy 108 ancient woodlands. It's going to destroy sites of special scientific interest. Um, you know, so many species are going to, you know, lose their vital habitat. Um, you know, ancient woodland is something which can't be regrown. You know, HS2 talk about replanting trees, and it, it's actually a really green initiative. But the chances of you know, one seed becoming a, a an ancient tree in, I don't know, 200, 500 years time is absolutely minuscule. You can't reproduce these types of habitats. It just doesn't work like that. Um, so, you know, we are, we, we talk about protecting, um, you know, our houses or our, uh, these buildings that have massive cultural significance to us, they get listed and protected immediately. But whenever there's these kind of really strong culturally significant environmental habitats they seem to they don't get the same kind of protection uh, whatsoever and this is just such just, i get so frustrated talking about it because it's going to produce so much more carbon in the long term um just to, just to build it, it it is massively carbon intensive and we're taking away habitats that take carbon out of the atmosphere and we're replacing it by a, a, a rail network which you know, it saves 20 minutes of a journey, which for me, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd happily sit on sit on a train for an extra hour, two hours, 25, whatever, in order to protect those those habitats. And the amount of money that it's costing could have been spent on the NHS throughout COVID. Um, there's so many better places for it to go. Um, and when you talk, you know, obviously it's good that we want to encourage people to be on public transport more and more. So... I think, you know, why not spend that money instead of on HS2 by upgrading and making our existing railway network more secure? There are a few more trains and they are, can be greener, they can be more efficient, but we're not pumping out carbon to produce just for an extra 20 minutes of the journey, which I just think is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, um, I, I definitely have been quite involved in this in the last few months, uh, talking to people at the HS2 camps and and places like that and and it is incredibly frustrating to talk about um i mean i know earlier i was mentioning the sort of effects of social media um i have i think 32 followers on twitter but i tweet one thing about hs2 uh, my opinion and i get you know 70 78 80 comments of um people just sending me articles and sending me things and trying to convince me that it is ecologically good for the country and good for uh, society and it's just it's incredibly frustrating because I mean I have no formal training in biodiversity I'm not a zoologist but even I can see that it is completely detrimental uh, for wildlife in the UK um, and it is a it's a it's a pretty frustrating topic to just kind of engage in a conversation with it's, it's I've never had a double-sided conversation with someone about HS2. Yeah, I mean, it's counterintuitive. The whole project is entirely against everything that we say we should be doing um, for the environment. It goes against every kind of regulation. The amount of, kind of money that's going into it has just become this money sink. And I, I almost feel like it's kind of gone so far that people are, uh, you know, don't want to hold their hands up and say, actually, we might have been wrong on this one. You know, maybe we should take a step back and, you know, not go forward of it i think we're you know quite a stubborn species and we don't like to get things wrong but you know that's part of it we have to hold our hands up and say when we're wrong and hs2 is very very wrong the 108 woodlands is a lot 
you know, these these trees have been standing here for hundreds of years, and you know, who are we to knock them down for an extra twenty minutes? It just it doesn't make any sense. All that vital vital habitat, you know, scientific interest sites, which are so 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 important, um, you know, for all types of biodiversity. Um, it's just an absolute kind of disgrace, to be honest, that this is going ahead. It's a total embarrassment to the, I think, to the UK that this is even being considered and still spoken about um, when we know now that it is entirely out of place and it's just not ecologically, environmentally sound whatsoever. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for giving your honest opinion on that because it's. <laughs> I think it's really important to have that conversation I think um as I said I'd, I'd like to talk about it more in a whole episode but um I think getting the perspective of you as a scientist but also as an environmental campaigner and, and just someone who's opposed to it in a logical way um because I think a lot of people will have arguments with, with other people and just neither side will be able to present good enough evidence to make the to kind of win the other one over um and leading back to what you said right at the beginning about we just need to be open to changing our minds and a lot of people uh that i've spoken to about it just to just immediately they hear those three uh that that word i guess it's a word um and they just shut up they just clam up and they just have their opinions set and they won't change it um i mean we're we're conditions for conservation just in general Mm, yeah no it's, it's it's horrible I think um a lot of the if you look at what the government does generally or has done in the past for wildlife it's it's been so minimal um I heard recently with the with the research into the land justice thing that um over the last since 2010 I think it is uh they've given two thousand pounds a year to countryside the countryside code leaving no trace like um countryside management practices uh, which is tiny. It's it's such a tiny amount compared to the hundred and nine billion that they're spending on HS two. Yeah. Um, when you put things into perspective like that, it's just you know it's awful. You know, there's that whole thing on the news about you know people saying that we shouldn't be giving children free school meals during COVID. Um, and and, and if I, it did it did happen in the end. But you know, why are we spending that much money on HS two when we you know got we could be feeding children or. Um, you know, supporting the NHS or doing things like that with, with that. I mean, there's a billions of it is just going into this project that it would be so better spent elsewhere. So before we finish off, we're just going to do a little quick fire round. So first off, what's your favourite animal? Oh, tiger shark. Tiger shark. That was actually the quickest answer I've had so far. I usually need to like cut out the pause because everyone thinks about it way too long. Uh, well, it is difficult. I mean, I love tigers. I love sharks. So I just put them together and it happens to actually be an existing species. So Great. <laughs> um, where is a place you like to go and connect with nature somewhere you feel kind of really at home in nature? I mean, close to home, it would be the New Forest where I live. You know, that's where I, I understand the British nature the best. Uh, internationally, I'd say I feel most at home in Africa, probably in Namibia. I've spent time working there and I just, uh, yeah, there's no place like it for me. I just, um, yeah, I feel very comfortable and I, I love working with the, the big predators there. But um, you can't beat UK wildlife, so I'd have to go ultimately the New Forest. Do you have a conservation hero? Hmm. 
would say Jill Robinson for me. So she started Animals Asia um, when she, well, she worked in Hong Kong for a while in, in animal charities and she went on a tour and she went um, into, uh, I think it was somebody's basement and found lots of Asiatic black bears in cages. Um, and they were being milked for their bile, and she was so horrified by what she saw. One of the bears actually put its paw out and touched her on the shoulder, and she held its paw. Um, just and it wasn't aggressive; it was just kind of an incredibly sad animal, as you would be spending thirty plus, you know, twenty thirty years in a cage, being you know having your bile extracted. So she was so motivated by that that she started the charity Animals Asia, and they work throughout. China, Laos, Vietnam to end bear bar farming and uh, they work also in animals and circuses and um, the dog and meat cat trade too so she's one of the most kind, genuine, compassionate people I've ever met and so motivated and she's made such a big difference. Um, last off, how do you take your coffee? Oh, do you know what? I don't drink coffee, I really wish I did. I mean that's about it but before we finish I'd like to ask where can people find you, kind of what are your social media handles, how can people get involved with the projects you're working on, that kind of thing. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Megan McCubbin or Instagram at Megan underscore McCubbin photo um, and I post quite regularly about different conservation stories and initiatives and campaigns um, on, face- on Facebook too, Megan McCubbin Wildlife and Conservation um, and I post a lot there about how you can get involved with petitions or campaigns, organisations um, and also about the upcoming book too. Great. Well, thank you so much again for being on the podcast and I'm really looking forward to reading the book and seeing more of your work in the near future. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Megan for taking the time to speak to me today. All the links to her social media will be in the description down below. So I said that today we're featuring Owen's Coffee. This is a small company that puts sustainability at the heart of what they do. From their coffee pouches, which are now 100% recyclable, including the valve, to their organic methods and the low impact building where they roast their coffee. I was especially impressed with the flavour of this coffee, since making pouches 100% recyclable at almost every supermarket in the UK is very very hard to do while retaining the original flavour of the coffee. Owen's coffee pouches are still able to keep the coffee fresh and be fully recyclable as code 5LBPE. This is the same recycling code in the UK as plastic bags, so although this is still plastic, it's a huge step in the right direction as most coffee pouches are incredibly hard to recycle. Uh, We sort of had to trust our recycling systems to deal with this one correctly. All the details of this particular coffee I'm drinking will be over on our Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists and in the description down below. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts and a few more places, so tune in on the 5th of October to hear episode 9, which will be with expedition guide, PhD scientist and director of sustainability for natural habitat adventures, Court Whelan. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman-Jones, and this is the Coffee with Conservationists podcast.